friends, welcome back to A Thousand Names for God. My name is Rick Alexander. I am the host of this podcast. And if this show is helpful or meaningful to you in any way, the greatest compliment you could give me is to share the show with somebody else that you think the show might resonate with or to head to iTunes and give us a five-star review. I only have a couple of announcements today. If you want to work with me or check out more of my content, you can do so at rickalexander.com. And additionally, I have on August 24th, I have a psychology of cannabis workshop coming up. Now, in this workshop, I'm going to explore the psychology and practice of cannabis use from a depth psychological perspective. I'm going to look at how cannabis affects the psyche using C.G. Young's model of the psyche, as well as exploring the plant in both its sacred and cultural context. Additionally, I'll explore methods and techniques for using cannabis that facilitate personal growth and individuation. And if you can't make it to the actual event, though I do plan on it being quite interactive, but if you're still interested in the content and can't make it, I will be sending out the recording afterward. So again, you can check all of that out at rickalexander.com or in the show notes of this episode. Now, switching gears into today's idea, we're going to talk about the tantric worldview. I'm going to share a paper that I wrote called Tantra and the Erotic Heart of Individuation. And what I'm doing in this paper is I'm bringing Jungian psychology, in, I'm putting it in dialogue with the tantric worldview. And I'm essentially asking the question, how do our psychic models of becoming, our, our models of individuation, and our models of psychic unfoldment change if we take seriously the idea of the tantric worldview. Now, I'm not going to explain any more about Tantra right now, only because, one, I do talk quite a bit about the worldview in this paper, so you'll pick up on it, and I'll do many more episodes on Tantra going forward because it is a philosophy that I find to be incredibly sophisticated and compelling, and I've written a lot about it in the last couple of years. So I won't go into all of that now. And, you know, interestingly, as this episode drops, I'm actually sharing a lot of these ideas at a conference in California. So I'm super excited to share this with this audience. I'm going to I'm going to read the paper. And as I normally do, I'll probably have some commentary and some things to say as the paper goes on. But without further ado, Tantra and the erotic heart of individuation. In the tantric worldview, spiritual goals are not sought after at the cost of embodied life. And as such, the seeker is not redirected away from the sensual and the pleasurable, but is encouraged to go further into its depth, examining its character, meditating on its quality, and searching for its source. Now this mythology paints a vision of the whole where the source of life and life's many manifestations and forms are not thought of as separate from each other, but are woven together by the same intimate thread. And actually, one of the common definitions of Tantra is to weave. Thus, the various activities of life, sleeping, waking, longing, and loving, all act as hidden gateways through which one can enter into its very essence. In the Vigyana Bhairava Tantra, a text originating in Kashmir, India, circa 800 CE, the goddess Shakti, having veiled herself in the world of form, 
yearns to find this secret thread and enter this hidden gateway by playfully entering into a conversation with Shiva. She wonders, what is this delight-filled universe into which we find ourselves born? What are these energies undulating through our bodies, pulsing us into action? What is this power we call life, appearing as the play of flesh and breath? How may I know this mystery and enter it more deeply? And by the way, I will quote, I will put the source for all of these quotes in the show notes of this episode. This version of the Bhairava Tantra that I'm quoting comes from an author, Lauren Roach, who rewrote it, calling it the Radiant Sutras. And it's a really, really great, if you're interested in a tantric text, it's a great one. Now, in this conversation between lovers, one may notice a curiously erotic tone. In the non-dual tantric traditions, there is an attempt to understand life by seeing the world as a cosmic romance, where its culmination is the union and coming together of what's been separated through the act of creation. Here, Shiva, the pure potential and all-pervading awareness of the universe, has been separated by a veil of ignorance from his beloved, Shakti, who is the dynamic, creative, energetic force that dances all life into being. Shiva replies, Beloved, your questions touch the heart of wonder, the path of intimacy with all life, weaving together body and soul, sex and spirit, individuality and universality. Now, individuality and universality are woven together by the tantric notion of the micro and macrocosm, where the body is seen as a reflection of the universe at large. We must try, however, to resist the reductionistic inclinations that would have us see the inner as merely a reflection of the outer. They not only reflect each other, but in a way that bends the modern intellect built upon Aristotelian logic They also contain each other, so that the mysteries of one are accessible through the other. What's more is that this cosmology cannot be apprehended by the intellect at all, for it is only verifiable through direct experience, where the whole of the cosmic order can be felt vibrating, radiant, and complete in any of its constituent parts, including the individual person. For navigating the microcosm, we find the idea of the chakra system a map outlining the energetic pathways of the body. Each chakra, a convergence of pathways, where various deities, elements, and mantras, i.e. vibrational frequencies that correspond with particular aspects of consciousness, can all be found. Shakti sits below, coiled up as kundalini in the dark womb of the earth, symbolized by muladhara, the root chakra. She, being found in the depths of matter, is the aspect of God that theologians often refer to as immanence, that which is right here and immediately available to incarnate life. On the opposite end is Shiva, that aspect of divinity known as transcendence, sitting up in Sahasra, the crown chakra. The goal of the path is to awaken the goddess, allowing her to climb up through the body and to be reunited with the beloved. Such a reunion is supposed to bring with it a gnosis that untangles the knots of finitude and limited understanding, awakening one to the depths of mystery that the goddess sought through her earlier questions to Shiva. So notice that this path is about awakening the goddess within and allowing her to climb up through the chakra system. 
through the tantric imagination then, the body itself becomes a container where the original cosmogonic romance is reenacted. This has wide-reaching implications for the way that the spiritual seeker and student of psyche relate to their own body. First, the myth posits that the body should not be viewed as inert matter or an object upon which we subjects can force our will. In contrast to that, the body now becomes an entire ecosystem, teeming with life, where one's capacity to hold such internal movement determines how much movement is possible. Thus, psychic containment and capacity become important staples in the work. Secondly, as the archetypal psychologists are quick to remind us, it does not make sense to speak only of a single perspective. Rather, the individual quote-unquote body contains within it a plurality of deities with transitory and shifting perspectives that have agency and goals all on their own. We participate in the drama more than we commandeer its direction. In a series of lectures given in 1932 on the psychology of kundalini yoga, Carl Jung took the chakra system a step further, positing the idea that it acts as a symbolic theory of the psyche where each chakra is not only an energetic experience, but is synonymous with an entire level of consciousness and way of being in the world. Each also contains a symbol with the power of transforming consciousness and leading it beyond itself into what, at present, is only unconscious. Thus, through a symbolic perspective, each chakra contains the subtle spark that hints at the opportunity for consciousness expansion, the widening of possibility, the integration of new perspectives, and an opening to subtlety. The opening to subtlety speaks to the sophistication of the path. Each chakra has both a shtula, or gross aspect, as well as a sukshma, or subtle aspect. Now, like all esoteric philosophies insist, there is what is plainly available and obvious, and that which is hidden, accessible only through philosophical inquiry, contemplative pause, and the subtle refinement of perception. Subtlety is what opens up psychic and somatic space, allowing the movement inward to proceed. If Tantra becomes our model of psychic development, then, we must necessarily approach our inner work not as a dominant wishing to impose our will for evolution on these inner figures, but as a lover who brings a gentle touch and a perceptive attentiveness to nuance and idiosyncrasy. The Bhairava Tantra insists that the doorway beyond the density of gross life is found in the subtle pauses and transitions, the space between each breath, the unconditioned opening that precedes any moment or happening. That first instant after waking, when the entire world appears to you completely fresh and new, to move towards subtlety is simultaneously a move away from dominance and tyranny. This is necessary because the goddess will not be attained or owned, but like a handful of sand from the beach will slip out as our grasp tightens. This is not a path of personal development where the ego satisfies its desire to become the center. Young points out that kundalini yoga and its system of chakras symbolizes the development of the impersonal life. The advancement of consciousness happens as one attunes to and courts the inner other. 
to identify with these transpersonal energies and the inflation they provide is akin to the narcissistic lover that looks to their partner only to mirror back to them their own ideas of self-importance. But the unity of love demands that the pride of individuality is yielded to a greater end. It is the devotion to union that overcomes the desire for gratification and displaces the ego as the center of its own universe. And as would be expected with any attempt to translate the sacred into psychological language, there is cause for much contention with Jung's work, where the first four chakras were seen as symbolizing the path of individuation. So basically what Jung did is when he was looking at the chakras, and he's imagining that each one is explaining a level of consciousness. He said that individuation, his path of analytical psychology, the becoming whole, actually stops at the Anahata chakra, which is the heart chakra, the fourth. Now, the reason he said that, or, or what he said, is as you move beyond the Anahata into Vishuddha, into the Vishuddha chakra, the throat, you actually go beyond what words can describe. You're now moving in. If we're looking at these as levels of consciousness, this is the move into the mystical. This is the move into the ineffable, the move into the place where words stop working. So what he did is he, he mapped the first four chakras up to the heart onto his path of individuation. Now, understandably so, not all are satisfied when cultural ideas are taken out of context. At its worst, it's a form of intellectual colonialism. At its best, it's a seeing through into the universal nature of the human experience. While it is beyond the scope of this paper and this work that I'm talking about now to address each critique, the aim here is to dream forward the dialogue between Tantra and analytical psychology that was started almost 100 years ago. It has been my observation that like any good romance, the two speak to each other's blind spots. One concerned mainly with the phenomenological, the other maintaining the primacy of the metaphysical. They support the other where they are weak. One emphasizes the necessity of working through the personal unconscious, the other concerned with navigating the collective layer. And ultimately, as we will see as the path unfolds, they both seek refuge in the same place, the human heart. Lauren Roach, who translated the Bhairava Tantra, renaming it the Radiant Sutras, reminds us that it is a conversation between lovers, inseparable partners, and one of their favorite places of dwelling is in the human heart. Young points out in Liber Noves, that's his red book, that knowledge of the heart can only be attained, quote, by living your life to the full. Thus, we are invited to ask, what gods are present when we are in the heart space, that is, when we are fully alive? What does life look and feel like when this internal romance is consummated? The answer may provide a north arrow for the path we seek to walk between these two philosophies. In the West, psyche is often thought to be in the brain, the mind, or the intellect. Thus, our personal myth also tends to exist in the realm of thought, where belief becomes the linchpin that binds us and our mythologies together. If we are to take Jung's perspective of the chakra system seriously, however, the psyche is in actuality spread throughout the body, and thus it is here that our personal myth unfolds. This does not solve the common Western mind-body dualism, but rather dissolves it showing it to be a false dichotomy in the first place. 
In response to Young's vision seminars, Camilla Thompson points out that individuation occurs only when unconscious material is filtered through the senses, experienced in the body, and witnessed by self or another. The analytical goal of individuation and the tantric project of liberation are not then to be thought of as nouns, places to arrive, but as verbs, an unfolding process through embodied action. The Western ideal of a static achievement that one can hang their laurels upon is replaced with dynamic relational process where the highest value is found in how one is moving through life and relating to what is within and around them now, in this moment, only to be dissolved and recreated in the next. For Jung, such an embodied mythology puts the Western-minded person in a precarious situation. He says, we are confronted with a paradox. For us, consciousness is located high up in the Ajna Chakra, so to speak. And yet, Muladhara, our reality, lies in the lowest chakra. So here, our situation is analogous to that of Shiva, who sits high above his beloved and must descend into the depths of the imaginal in order to find his soul, without whom nothing is possible. The Acharya says, when Shiva is united with Shakti, he is able to create. Otherwise, he is unable even to move. The masculine without its feminine, in this context, consciousness without its essential life force, is like the sterile and static ego that is condemned to bear the burden of life without access to the creative ground that gives it meaning. We see here that if these two philosophies inform our path of becoming, it is not one of ascension. We arrive at Vishuddha, the throat chakra, only to find Yang blocking the way and pointing us back down, highlighting the need to surrender and accept the ordeal of earthly life. One can almost hear James Hillman, too, chuckling at our expense when we thought we could find soul without descending, without the thonic depths calling us first. A descent into the body immediately relativizes the intellect and brings with it the need for a more relational way of being. This forces us to grapple seriously with our own unexamined need for control. The part of ourselves that does not want to give up our hard-fought intellectual enthronement over nature is precisely the part that must descend if we want to sincerely work with the kundalini path. It seems that the intellect feels much safer when it pretends to have distance from the unpredictable, ever-regenerating, totally out of control to the individual person, world of Shakti. Every inch of movement toward the goddess mirrors back to the intellect its own poverty and its own inability to ascertain the certainty it seeks. Thus, we seem always to be in the habit of looking up to God to pick us up rather than down to her to catch us. If one looks uncritically at the chakra system, one is inclined to think that their natural predilection to move upward is confirmed, not realizing that the serpent does not even begin to move for those who expect her to come to them, those that are not humble, i.e. that are not close to the earth. Thus, Muladhara is where one starts out on the spiritual adventure. To find the goddess, we must work through our aversion to regression and downward movement so that we too can start in Muladhara. While many today seek to clear their energy centers through vibration or music, it is worth pointing out that psychologically speaking, it is the inner work done through the descent that clears the way for Kundalini to rise. 
For us, whose abode is high up in the intellect, to descend to the goddess requires that we confront the life we've left unlived and the words we've left unsaid. The entire descent is tantamount to a meeting with the life we've discarded, which now, according to Jungian thought, exists in the personal shadow. It follows, then, that the shadow becomes the via regia to the goddess, that is, the royal road. We pass by the closed throat and the closed heart chakras, which necessarily brings us face to face with all of the reasons we've convinced ourselves that the heart must remain closed, and with the stories we've believed that keep us small and keep us from speaking truth. We will have to pass by the solar plexus and confront our own lack of discernment, as well as the guilt and unbearable affect that arise from making choices that are out of alignment with our internal constitution. We submerge ourselves into the second chakra, the watery abyss that marks the passage into the unconscious. To awaken Shakti without having cleared the path, or through trying to clear the path without doing the necessary inner work, can lead to psychic fragmentation. In Jungian terms, we would see this as trying to move into the collective unconscious without first pulling back the projections in the personal. To expose the weak ego to such transpersonal energy without adequate containment could easily lead to the evisceration of the personality structure. This helps us understand the necessity of first translating these concepts into psychological language. For the modern person, the luxuries of culture cost us a personal shadow, which disconnects us from Muladhara. Thus, the chasm between who we perceive ourselves to be and who we instinctively and naturally are is marked by an unknown abyss which we must travel through, braving old conditioning and our perpetual fear of downward movement. It's Young's night sea journey. What Tantra proposes, however, is that the journey is not made for the sake of the isolated self, but for the beloved. We lose ourselves for the sake of the union our souls long for. If this becomes our model of the psyche's unfolding, a love story which we ourselves must participate in, it also has wide-reaching implications for the role of desire and longing, which becomes the very fuel for evolution, leading us from the personal to the impersonal from life under the tyranny of ego to life in relationship with soul. In describing the tantric view of desire, Sally Kempton says, cosmic desire brings the universe into being, and the world is, in one sense, an outflowing of the cosmic erotic impulse. The Sanskrit term for the desire that occurs at the cosmic level of reality is icha, translated often as divine will. All of creation is thus an act of will, a spilling over of the love that is made between Shiva and Shakti. The sexual act is then a microcosmic recreation of the primordial act that gave birth to the cosmos. In it, the pulsating and vibratory quality of existence itself is drawn near, and one finds themselves at the threshold of another gateway. When one moves in close to the beloved, their hard edges are softened and perception grows ever more subtle and attentive like the mystic. In the midst of giving, they become receptive. The very paradoxes that define earthly life are felt in their fullness and then dissolved in union. The erotic impulse seeks always to dissolve itself in the oceanic union from which it flows. Many, however, satisfy their desire in a way that the dissolution is very short-lived, and before much time has passed, the desire has intensified 
and thrown them back out and away from themselves. The difference between Icha and individual desire can be the difference between heaven and hell. In order to understand this, we have to understand how the unconditioned absolute becomes the paradox of manifest reality in the first place. The entire world of form, in this view, undergoes a descent through the 36 tattvas, or levels of reality, that progress in density from unbound, centerless awareness all the way down to physical matter. Interestingly, then, the body, the base-most layer, is the only one by which all others can be felt and experienced, since it is the only one that contains all of the other layers within it. For this descent is not a fall down the value hierarchy as we find in Christendom, but is a nested model of consciousness, where the all is found fully in every part. It is this view that should inform our idea of desire. All human desire in this view boils down to the fundamental desire to express oneself, the creative love of Shiva and Shakti made manifest in the finite person. For this reason, satisfying a finite desire without recognizing its source can only leave us hungry and in need of more. Young in Liber Noves, a record of his own imaginal descent, reminds us that hunger makes the soul into a beast that devours the unbearable and is poisoned by it. My friends, he says, it is wise to nourish the soul. Otherwise, you'll breed dragons and devils in your heart. Note the movement that occurred from being in wrong relationship with one's own desire. The heart is transformed from the bed of union to a vapid wasteland prowled by beasts unable to satisfy themselves. Whenever the desire for wholeness and creative expression are projected upon an external object, our awareness collapses around that object and we are lost in ignorance, thinking we want this, but actually in our soul, longing for that. Young says that he whose desire turns away from outer things reaches the place of soul. He could find his soul in desire itself, but not in the objects of desire. If he possessed his desire and his desire did not possess him, he would lay a hand on his soul, since his desire is the image and expression of his soul. What Young speaks of here would be known in tantric terms as pure desire which is a natural flowing forth of your essence nature into embodied action. It does not seek to grasp something and bring it in. It is the opposite movement, an impulse to share yourself, to connect your innate vibration with the world. Through the descent into reality, desire becomes the psychosomatic manifestation of Icha, the will of the goddess. In light of this, our task is to build awareness around the way we have been mistaken and allowed the various objects of desire to captivate and collapse our attention, while in truth, the current that leads to the heart, to one's own heart, the place of individuation, and to the heart of reality, the place of liberation, is found by turning our gaze inward toward the erotic impulse itself. For it leads to the unique expression of soul, the reason life took up form as you in the first place. It is supposed to lead even beyond that, into what exactly even Carl Jung was humble enough not to say.